0: Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only. Today, we're joined by Michael Iman, who's the Managing Director at Orgis Services. It's one of the leading solar and storage developers in the country. Michael's got a really uh, unique and exciting background, having been in the Navy. Uh, we won't hold that against him, as I'm an Army guy uh, and commanding in the Naval Reserves. Uh, but he's also, you know, really come to age as the the industry's come to age in the operating side. It's a it's an area that most people just don't talk about on the finance side on the O piece, but it's so critical for the long term value of these systems. And we'll we'll dive into that today. Hope you enjoy, Mike. Thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only. Happy to be here, John. This is great. Really love your background uh, as, an, as an Army guy. I won't make Navy jokes, but you're, uh, you know, you, I want to I talk about your sort of your military experience in a second, but but you grew up in Texas. You know, what got you interested first in joining the military and then later on in sort of the energy space?
1: Yeah, I you know, I, I graduated from uh, Texas A&M Galveston in 94 and was teaching school through an AmeriCorps program for high school dropout, 70 to 21-year-old, like, inner city sort of kids. Yeah. Um, it was called Seaborne Conservation Corps and it was a military style program and uh, had the the gentleman who was running the program was a retired colonel uh, and he just had a big impact on me. He was a Marine Corps guy, aviator. And uh, so, you know, as a young man, I just I figured I would see what I what I could do and went down to the recruiting district, took some tests. And they said, "What do you think about being a pilot?" And you know, I I made the decision with all the forethought of a that I could muster at at 23, and uh, and and decided to go for it. And so that was sort of the beginning of that. I I really didn't have a a plan. I mean, I would love to say that I would I would love to drape myself in the flag, but I didn't have a long term plan. It was just sort of a it was a moment in time that that lasted 21 years.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I was an ROTC guy, and I think coming out of high school, that wasn't all about. I had a scholarship. It was a good opportunity. I yeah. thought it was a chance to travel. Uh, there's obviously probably for you too, pre
1: 9-11. So that was a major yeah, shift. Yeah, it was a different world. I mean, it, it, it completely changed, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And is is it anything, because I know you, you were in Afghanistan, right? Yep. Yeah. Anything anything in those experiences? Like I talked to a lot of vets who work in the clean energy space that that got you interested in the energy side? Like what sort of started to drive that transition?
1: Yeah, I mean, it just really had to do with, uh, you know, I mean, we were deploying even before 9-11, you know, constantly to the Middle East, right? Yeah. Following the Gulf War. I mean, you know, really the moment in time when I really started thinking about it was I was flying a mission one night over Iraq and we had two SA-3s shot in our direction and it was a big kind of slow plane. So it's not, I'd love, you know, we didn't have any maneuvers to try to dodge or anything. You're kind of just sitting there waiting to hear a loud noise. And they used to call them sandbushes back then. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, like, why are we here? Like, <laughs> right, like right. why are we doing this? And, <laughs> and, you know, I had a real sense of service and purpose, but at the same time, I, I felt like our national policy had been, you know, just chained totally to a region that, that, that often, you know, didn't want us there. Right. And, right. and we can have discussions about philosophical discussions about. Different governments and the different policies, but that's really the meat of it. And and yet we had to be there, right? Because sixty percent right. of the oil and gas we used in the in the United States came from the light sweet crude from the Middle East, and so we had to sustain those supply chains to su- sustain you know our plastics industry, pharmaceuticals, you name it, across the board. So, and energy, and so it really came down to when I finally got out wanting to be a part of changing that. Right. I I, I had a mission when I was in and when I got out, I wanted a mission again. And, and this seemed a place where I could be a help to try to push, push us away from that necessity and allow us choices at a national level versus uh, being forced. Did you feel like, I mean, I, I had a very similar experience, right?
0: When I transitioned out, I was not even, you know, I, I started looking at this issue maybe originally sort of as an energy security issue. And then I began to understand sort of climate change and, and the role that I, I wasn't some climate change activist, environmentalist. I mean, I was always an environmentalist, but sort of coming out of the military. But once I really got into the nuts and bolts of all of the ways that this worked and went back to school and focused on it, that's for me really when I began to get interested more in the climate and clean, clean energy side of it versus just pure. And en- because you could talk energy security, you could talk, you know, uh, being up in Oklahoma, not too far north from you, and they're sure. you know they're uh, fracking gas wells, right? As a way to sort of have true energy security. What what was sort of the trigger that got you
1: into the clean energy side and the climate side? It, it was really just wanting to break that that connection, right? Right. Um, that that connection to national strategy. I, I would again, I'd like to sort of wrap myself in the green energy, uh, but that's not really where my heart was at the time. Um, yeah. Certainly I'm, I'm, I'm an environmentalist. My undergraduate degree was in oceanography. You know, I, I, you know, I, the climate science and what's going on is, is critical, but for me personally, it was about, I felt like we needed to be able to be free to make better decisions as a country. Yeah. And so, you know, oil and gas, uh, traditional forms of power they're you know, they're going to be there for a long time. I don't necessarily have an issue with them per se, but Going forward, it just doesn't make sense, right? It just doesn't make sense. We as a country need to be free to make different decisions and not, you know, just sort of fettered with that uh, infrastructure. And so, and I think people don't understand how much that drives the decisions we make and have as a nation. The yeah, as a nation. Oh my god, so right? much. Yeah, exactly. enforced them. I mean, realistically, we had to make those decisions the way we did. We can again, people can argue about whether you should or shouldn't do this war or that war. I'm talking about our broad engagement. Yeah. and our policies. And so, um, spending billions protecting the, the Strait of Hormuz, right? Like Yeah, yeah. It, it, exactly. You have this narrow strait with where the people on either side I mean, just hate each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> And, and we, particularly in the Navy, and, uh, you know, are there, you know, ensuring it for decade after decade. I mean, why? Right. Like, for a Yep, exactly. You know. So so we, you stayed
0: in the reserves, but then you ran, you know, your career path on the, before getting to where you are today, you know, you were at SunPower, uh, you actually had a background a little bit in, in technology as well. Sort mm-hmm. of walk me through like your sort of career prog- pro- progression before you got to, to
1: where you are at Orgis. Yeah, I mean, when I when I got out, I, I couldn't find a job. I spent about a year and a half, two years, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do. I worked for a, a streaming company. I was substitute
0: company. teaching, Mike, at
1: one point. It, yeah, 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 exactly, right? <laughs> I, so, I worked for a streaming company called Coolabite. I was a COO for a small video game company. Uh, we delivered a couple of projects, you know, there, and it was really just like project to project because people didn't understand my resume. They didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, so common know, too for people coming out of the military. Yeah, I didn't know how to translate it and I had, you know, almost 15 16 years of experience that that according to the real world accounted for nothing. Yeah, yeah. And so I needed to be able to plant my foot and pivot, so UT had a great MBA program that's recognized nationally and and I've always been a big believer in education. I already had one master's degree, but I was like I realized that I needed a uh I needed credibility, so I went back to school and I've, you know, I can't say enough about that program. UT and, and yeah. Dr. Burroughs and his team have done for so many students is really incredible.
0: Is there a dynamic though coming as a former A&M guy into UT
1: where you've got to like change t-shirts and hats? And is
0: there, <laughs> is there a lot of? It's, team, I tell people sometimes commitment. I have to
1: pick which ring to wear. But since A&M yeah. went to the SEC, there was a little less conflict. All right, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I also found that the AM guys were much more focused on UT than UT was on AM. UT was more focused on OU. So yeah, that's right. <laughs> it really wasn't that big a deal as it turns out. Uh, but yeah. You know, so
0: it, so it, so you yeah. come out you come out of school, is that when you went into Sun Power?
1: No, it was about halfway through. So I had, you know, I had blanketed the country with resumes. You know, I had gone, yeah. I had sort of zeroed in on energy and renewables and I had I had sent resume after resume uh, at SunPower, and they they just kept bouncing off like a super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I- eventually, I I basically just networked in and got to Marty Niece, who was the only c level leader at SunPower with a military background. Marty still still a good friend and mentor of mine. Hmm. And Marty, you know, he was a, he, he was an army guy, right? Yep. You got so, it. So, and so he was willing to give me a chance when no one else would. That's great. It just really comes down to that. You no, know,
0: here, when I was at Bloom, my, our chief sales guy was a former Navy guy and he was dedicated to hiring. That's for the reason you laid out earlier is people don't know how to translate the, the resume. So they miss the leadership that's been developed in from a career perspective for, for veterans along the way. Um, yeah. So you go, so you go into sub power and just sort of looking at your career path, you really start to focus in on the operation side of these things. You know, when, you sort of having been the CEO of another company, having been, you know, obviously in the Navy, having sort of uh, been an officer in charge of of different stuff, did, did you sort of like that idea of sort of diving into the operations side and managing these systems? Like, what sort I,
1: of stoked your interest there? I think so. I mean, it was it was partly that I had a ton of background and experience to bring to bear, right? Yeah, operations is heavy on the leadership side because it's seventy percent of the cost, and operations is is manpower, right? so you're really leading large groups of people yeah uh, when you and it's accretive you know over time as we keep generating more and more assets they just build up and and get bigger and bigger and bigger in these portfolios for companies like yours that are sort of aggregating these assets right over time and so i i, I identified it as an area that was lacking you know in focus and in that expertise a little bit not to say that there weren't experts in the area there were but but solar was transitioning. You know, at, at when I joined in two thousand and when I came into solar in two thousand and twelve, you know, a, a hundred megawatt project was massive, like unheard of. And we executed Solar Star, which was the largest project in the world at the time, five hundred seventy nine right. megawatts. And today, those are happening. You know, they're still big projects, but they're happening. You know, by the tens and twenties all over the country every single year. Just in Texas. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that transition where we're generating these massive projects meant that the operations side actually delivering on all that promise, you know, it required some more focus. And so I just identified that it was an area that I had set a skill set to bring to bear and, and it was an opportunity where I could go there and, and hopefully make a difference. And so that was really, so I navigated internally within SunPower to that side of the business and, and yeah. gone on from there.
0: And when you trans- transition then from SunPower to to Origin, so what what led to that transition? And then you know it, it's great to see sort of just looking at your your resume how so you went from being the operations side to to running the services company. Talk through the process, and then obviously I want just for folks that aren't aware, talk about what talk about orgis and talk about sort of the the work the company does in the services. Sure.
1: side. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't a direct transition. I went I went from SunPower. Uh, MaxGen uh, made an offer and brought me over to run their business development. I was there for about a year and a half. And then they sort of changed directions about that same time. And that gave me exposure to another, like, you know, another large top five, sure. you know, operations entity. So, I got to see, you know, how did SunPower do it? And how is MaxGen doing it? Meantime, I was really, I really became a student of, you know the other competitors in the industry and what was happening i spent a lot of time reading you know <laughs> i spent a lot of time looking at what's happening with the market so i so i can sort of look at where things are headed as much as i can and then started renewbot uh, about the same time that with tim mattis about the same time that i got out of maxgen and then tim took over as ceo there and and then i started at uh Orgis in september of 2018 when they took on the investment from Global Atlantic, uh, who, who's their owner, which tied them as a developer to those projects long term, and they they correctly realized that they needed someone uh, who sort of knew how to run those things long term to help, you know, ensure those investments really happened, you know, that, that they delivered the power and the and the performance, the financial performance that they were designed for. And so I came into the company. We, we did a round looking at, at M&A and uh, didn't really find a matchup. So we created Orgist Services as a wholly owned subsidiary that year in 2018 and have been growing it from the ground up uh, since
0: that time. So in that focus, the growth, originally it was focused on the assets themselves. And are you guys now managing for others as well?
1: We are. We're starting to. We, um, yeah. uh, Josh Corbett, who is uh, my director of business development, is out in the market. Participating in RFPs, we we really had to grow the business to the point that we could offer that full scope of services first, and, and we of course, yeah. crossed that line this year. Yeah, um, you know it takes a while to build up a full NERC facility and build up all the capabilities and the people, and it took us about a year and a half. So we were operating our own facilities in parallel to sort of putting those in place. But yeah, Let's we talk are, about that for
0: a second because yeah. I feel like a lot of folks, probably in, in our audience, may not be uh, maybe in the finance side mm-hmm. or the deal side and aren't thinking about you know, the the lifespan of these projects and how you have to own and, and really own and manage them. You know, first of all, what is a NERC? You know, what does it take to sort of put it together and why is sort of the security around it such an important aspect?
1: Yeah, sure. So National uh, Energy Reliability Council, I think that's correct. I may be saying it wrong. Correct me if I'm <laughs> wrong, John, but put me on the <laughs> yeah. spot with, an, Google with NERC an acronym. <laughs> so now yeah. i got to like, say it, otherwise <laughs> I'm going to look like an idiot. Uh, so, I'm bound to get something wrong. So if that's the that's word, right. I mean, that's fine. But uh, it, all of the you know energy producing assets in the country, you know, meet have to meet certain required requirements to move power around the grid. The grid's a national asset, right? Right. I mean, at, at the at the highest of levels, and so um, that, and these
0: are grid scale projects. You know, not so much the DGs and the elementary school, right? These are we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, these grid are grid tied systems.
1: Right. These are these are on par with nuclear power plants, combined cycle gas, coal fire, you know, exactly. coal fire plants. These are the these are the foundations of our national grid system, which is broken down into the different ISOs and the different regions ERCOT right. here in Texas. And so, you know, this is what you know, this is what happens. This is all the layers and all the people behind what happens every time you turn the light switch on at your house. Right. right. This is all the stuff that no one ever thinks about. And so it's really critical that that stuff meets certain requirements from a physical security, cybersecurity perspective, just just from a response time perspective. And so there there are levels that you have to meet for different size projects. So if you have a solar project that's over 75 megawatts today, then you have to monitor and run that with a NERC facility, Um, those NERC compliant or NERC. Uh, NERC-compliant facilities have different levels. They have a low, medium, and a high. Low is like up to 700 megawatts that you're moving on and off any given ISO. One and a half gigawatts takes you into the medium space. And so when you when you get to a certain size, the size of the plant and then the amount of power that you're moving requires you to have different uh, levels of, of of interaction and, and accountability. Is it, ge- from the NERC's perspective, is it geographically constrained?
0: So, you know, you 75 megawatts in Texas, or do you, or if you have a NERC, you have a system in Oregon, you can still manage that out of Texas. You you can manage it out of Texas. That's uh, what I mean. The, the NERCs don't have to be geographically focused or based. No, no, not at all. I mean, yeah. if we're
1: here in Texas today. We're managing stuff from Arizona to Florida. Right, right. You know, right now. And even have some stuff overseas, still in uh, Greece, actually. And so so yeah, you don't have to be in the region, but your your the level of your site, whether it's a low, medium, or high, is based on the amount of power you move in any particular ISO. So from that right. perspective, your regional, the amount of power you move per region in your ISO, whether you're ERCOT or Cal ISO or whatever, that does affect your the level of compliance that you have to provide.
0: Great. So step forward sort of to help educate the market here. What what are some of the misconceptions that You know when um, you're seeing sort of owners, right, or financiers coming in to to want to work with you all. And maybe I mean most of the stuff you're doing is in house right now. But as a team comes and says, "Hey, you know, we're we're modeling this out. You know, how should we be looking at asset management, N and M? One, how has it changed in the last couple of years? And then two, like how should people be looking at it? You know, sort of over over the next decade as it's becoming more of a uh, I don't want to say a commodity business because it's not, but it's it's become. You know, our industry as a whole it's just gotten much better at it over the last yeah. 10 years. Right. Yeah. And it has to be, you know, pristine here going forward to hit our climate goals for us to be able to own and operate these things.
1: Yeah. That was a lot. I'll see if I can, yeah. see if so, I can yeah, sorry. Uh, get to most of it. Um, so the team here, a lot of these it was guys, meant to ate, be a softball. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> it was like six softballs all at once. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but you know, the team here is more than just me. Right. And, course, yeah. and they all came from MaxGen. They came from SunPower. They came from the industry. They came from Connections uh most of the people here have have like like myself have done you know multiple rounds of gigawatts of solar in some place and and that's a small group of people there's maybe 40 or 50 people in the country that have done that and at an executive level there's maybe 12 to 15 and we all right. kind of know and we all know each other there's not that many of us out there just because it's still kind of small right yep. and so you know, that experience uh, although we're 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 still ramping here at at Origin's, that experience is is sort of there, and so we've seen we've seen the way these contracts are, have done evolve. Right in the early days of Sun out, Sun Edison, Sun Power, and and uh, you know Solar City dominance of the marketplace, you know, and First Solar, you saw particularly utility scale and a lot of DG delivered with performance guarantees and with full scope O and M contracts that were often as much as like sixteen dollars a kilowatt, which is you know, if anybody wants to give me one of those today, I'll take it immediately because that's crazy money. No one touches that. Right. Money. And and we saw those performance guarantees sort of, for a whole bunch of reasons, sort of fall away and really move towards availability guarantees, which is much easier for the O&M operator to control. Right. Because so much about performance is outside of our ability to, to affect. And so and so that all came with continued pricing pressure. So the cost went down, 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 down. And for a time over the last uh, probably three, four, maybe five years. It's been very common for for companies to have, uh, you know, preventive maintenance only contracts. So right. at a super low price. So that that serves from the finance perspective. It serves to put this really low price on a spreadsheet. But it but it unfortunately doesn't serve to really maintain the plans exactly yeah. over time. Because whether you believe it or not, these things are gonna break. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's really are 25 year plus. Bicycles, right? Yeah, they're going to break, right? I mean, yeah. things go wrong, and, and they go wrong with alarming regularity. And I don't mean that uh, alarming from the perspective of like by comparison to other forms of power. The amount of people you need to man these plants is much lower, right? Yep. than you need for a, a, a comparable thermal or nuclear, you know, or other or hydro kind of plant because there's really no moving parts. But that doesn't. But but lower doesn't mean zero. Right. And so what we're seeing now and, and what we here are really pushing on is moving back towards including more corrective maintenance into the schedule so that the the owners, the financiers and everybody have a really, you know, accurate and reasonable expectation of what these things are going to cost over time. Right. You know, because, right, 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 right. and that's really kind of where we're pushing as an industry is to say, guys, you know, these things don't fix themselves. You have to have people in the field, and we can provide them, but we've got we've to have rational contracts that that protect both sides, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Interesting.
1: I don't know so, if I hit all those softballs. No, 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 it's good. Yeah, they, one or two may hit the ground.
0: I think that the key part of that, though, is I think there is oftentimes on the acquisition and the development side, they're looking for the lowest dollar, right? As you said, yep. the preventative maintenance is, we're just going to do this. So, but at the same point, like, I think. We, at least on the DG side, one of the things we're starting to look at is actually repowering, right, and optimization. Do you see that as a developing part of the, maybe not so much the utility scale, I'm not sure, but a developing part of the space is, you know, we, we're going to, how can we sort of increase the efficiencies of these things <clears> over time as technology's gotten better? Or on the utility scale, is it like, we built it, it's out there, this thing's going to run until it doesn't run anymore, and we're going to suck every, every ounce of energy out of it?
1: Yeah. And, and I think you you guys probably do the same. Most financial models have some level of repower of major systems that they spread between years 15 and 25, right? Yep. So they'll start, you know, from a financial model perspective, they'll start layering in, oh, in year 15, 5% of a repower cost is going to hit. We're going to ramp it up on a curve and ramp it back down again. And somewhere in there, we'll have basically a new plant executing yeah. the, end of the 40-year lifetime. I, I think that those numbers, So the question of whether or not that's growing it, the answer is obviously yes, but it's on a, it's on a delay from the rest of the day, right? Because it's, it's, you start seeing those things at 10 years, it comes, you know, really clear at 15, it becomes critical at 20 and really the only markets that, uh, are that mature that have those types of plants in place. You get little ones, New Jersey, places like that, but in a large scale is Hawaii, uh, and then California. And so- As the rest of the market ages and matures repowering is going to become a bigger and bigger problem and and it's and it's not a small problem because the architecture changes yeah they went from 600 volts to a thousand volt to 1500 volt systems people are talking about 2000 or higher so when you go to repower and you go to just drop in new inverters it's not like you can just pull a string that, and put a new string right? in. Yep. yeah yeah you're, you're having to rework the entire electrical system yep you can't even find you can't mix panels yeah. You know, from older panels versus new because it 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 doesn't work on the site. So so what you end up doing is sort of, you know, for a period cobbling together bits and pieces that function and keeping less and less of the site running while you rebuild the other site and then at some point in time financially it makes sense to just rip all the other stuff out and and finish it out. Yeah. Right? So it's not really people think of repowering as something that you decide to do one day. Like, hey, I'm going to repower the system. Go, you know, rip it out and redo it. it. It really doesn't happen like that. It's really sort of an evolution. You're kind of keeping it going and stringing it along for a time. Then you're starting to release, replace pieces of it, and then you reach a point where financially it makes sense to pull the trigger and you do the rest. Yeah, and, and that is for the most of the country is still in the future. So um, I got one more question then looking
0: at you know looking out to 2020 I talk a lot on the show about 2030 cuz I think the next 10 years are just critical not just for our market but really for solving climate change you know what has to change uh, in the O&M industry as a whole or the way maybe even how people view the O&M industry right for us to really get to the scale we need to be at in 2030 to solve the climate crisis yeah another softball by the way but that's a tough one yeah
1: yeah <laughs> I mean, you know it's it's i would say that you know the OEM industry doesn't act in a vacuum, right? Right. And we, I tell people all the time, you know, we don't get to choose how these plants are made, where they're built, or what they're made out of. Typically, you know, we operate them as they sit. Yeah. So if you want to change the future, you have to take the, the lessons you're getting from the field today, and you have to apply them upstream in in how you design yeah. the sites, how you lay them out, how you look at the costs as a whole, how you what kind of equipment you buy. You know, and and I would say today that's that's generally not done well. You you have IEs that that get involved. You know, when you're you know sort of later in the process on behalf of the owners, the ultimate owners, and and I I will say that O and M experience is not resident in those entities today. Yep. Interesting. Uh, and they rarely ask. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> If they did
0: ask, like, how would you, you know, is there, so it's actually great feedback because we look at a lot of deals today and obviously yeah. we bring IEs in, you know, and, and to push them and like, how, how do we take the best practices that we're learning in the industry today and and, and incorporate them? Like, Are
1: there, uh, uh, like where, where do you even find this? Like, I, I where- would encourage, well, go to an owner. I would encourage the IEs as when they're looking at these scopes to reach out to a third party operator. Yeah, to weigh in from the operations perspective, and to give good information on on from that side of things. Yeah. Um. And and, and generally, I would say if you're reviewing a company and you've got you know company A that's going to be doing the O and M or or that's building it, you want to go to company B or C as a consultant, get an NDA in place, and have them come in and and say, okay, this is good, this is bad, this is something you need to think about, right? Yeah. I mean, for us, like, we want to have a handful of ONM
0: providers, right? We don't want to have dozens of them. And and, and having them weigh in on our deals is actually interesting. I thought about that. So,
1: yeah, I mean, it's really critical. And, and even at the point that the IEs are involved, frankly, the IEs don't have the ability to move the needle that much because the site design, the equipment, all that stuff is already done. Procurements completed. EPC contracts typically are in place and underway. Normally, you're, you're at or past NTP. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it really, not just at that point, but also in the design phase, people need to be asking questions. How do I design this plant to operate most effectively in this region, with this weather, with this environment right, for an extended period of time, right? And I see mistakes made there over and over and over again that are impossible to correct after the fact. Yeah, it's, it's in the ground, right? Yeah. So a
0: whole other conversation in the future of how to actually look at the climate impacts coming and incorporate that as well, because some of that... Sure. That ground is literally going to be changing over time here. Well, Michael, first of all, thank you so much for for joining. I always ask sort of one final wrap up question. If you go back to yourself, coming out of Arlington High, I think you went to, or even Texas A and M, and could sit down and have a beer. You know, what piece of advice would you give yourself?
1: I think the same advice I give myself that I'd give to anybody. You know, put energy, time into your networks and to people. Yeah, it may not. You know, most people only reach out to those networks when they need a job. Yep. They're suddenly they're really active on LinkedIn because they're in between a job or they want to make a change. And, you know, the way to have that stuff be valuable to you and to help you move in the direction you want to move to have the impact you want on the world is first to be of service and be of impact to others. Yeah. Right. So reach out to your network when other people need help with a job, take the time to make those references. When other people need help with something, take the time to talk to them. Yeah, that, you know it may not be obvious what the connection is, but that will come back and will enable you as an individual to have the impact that you want. It's so rare that I see people really do that. We have to be of service to each other, right? That that plays out over time. Do you think that comes a little bit from your military experience, You're sort of leading and working with troops? And I think so. I mean, I mean, surely there's a bit of a personal bias there that led me into that path to begin with. You know, yeah. so be To some degree, it's who I am, but uh, but I think it's. But I think everybody can sort of approach it that way. And I think we would all be better if we did. Yeah.
0: Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining. I want to thank uh, Matthew Hirsch from Kern for setting this up. Uh, and of course, our producers at Clean Capital uh, at Experts Only, Colin Young and Carly Batten. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, John. I really appreciate your time. I, you can great. always get more episodes at cleancapital.com. I look forward to advice on folks we should be talking to. And as always, uh, look forward to tuning in next time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.